Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. I'm also the author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and my goal is to decode exactly how to design a life that really matters, because if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. If you're new to the show, take a deep breath. Almost everything is trivial. Only a few things are essential, and that's what this show is all about. My job is to interview, get deep really with authors, entrepreneurs, psychologists, and everyday people to help explore what's essential. Through a process of listening, unpacking, and going deep with each guest, we turn each episode into practical advice for intentionally planning and living in order to move forward. The most common question I get from people who are hungry to become essentialists is, where do I start? And my answer to that question is the 21-day challenge. You can access it by going to essentialism.com right now. And if you pre-order my new book, Effortless, you can access this new course, this masterclass for free. Every day for 21 days, I'm going to provide you with micro-adjustments, realistic things that you can do to move from the non-essentialist to the essentialist way of living and leading. We just launched this a few days ago, and I'm absolutely thrilled to see hundreds and hundreds of people from literally all over the world signing up. Uh, just a few of them just today. Uh, Mariana Lynn from Sausalito, California. Shout out to you. Jan Schwartz from Brooklyn. Veronica Kaspercheks from Poland. And Trajan Shukla from India. Now to today's episode with Thomas Dimitrov. Thomas is an American-Canadian football executive. He served as general manager for the Atlanta Falcons from 2008 to 2020. Before that, he was with the New England Patriots for six years. Uh, he's been really at the elite level of collegiate or professional football literally throughout his whole life because his father coached football in Canada even before he began in this profession. But Thomas now finds himself on an unexpected path. After being rather unceremoniously fired at the beginning of this season, and in this episode, he pulls no punches. He's open. He's vulnerable in speaking of that experience. And I mean, listen to this episode if you've ever found yourself blindsided by life on a different path than you expected, suddenly having to figure out what's essential now. And in a global pandemic, I mean, surely that's all of us. Every one of us has lost something. So let's get to it. Here's Thomas Dimitrov. Thomas, how are you? You know what? I'm doing well. It seems like last time we talked, I had a job in the NFL for many, many years. And, and now, can you imagine? Uh, I don't. It's a little surreal. Yes, that happened fast. And we just spoke, I don't know, it feels like it's just a month ago, maybe. Exactly. And at that time... You weren't expecting this. Was not expecting it. Interestingly enough, in the NFL, uh, I would say it's not necessarily unprecedented, but very close to it, that a general manager gets fired in the first quarter of a season with the head coach. Sometimes it's a head coach. A general manager will, will last for the rest of the season. You'll re reevaluate everything. Uh, in the end, Arthur Blank, our owner, fantastic businessman, as you know, co-founder of Home Depot, very adept at what he does, decided that where ultimately and appropriately his loyalty is to the fan base, that he thought it was in the best interest of everyone, uh, that he would not only just fire the head coach, but also fire the general manager at the same time. 
in order to show to the, the fan base that he was very serious about winning back their loyalty as well. And that's ultimately what happened. Well, and you're speaking quite matter-of-factly about that, you know, not emotionally about it. You don't even sound bitter about it. But that feels like a very surface telling of what's happened. Underneath that, the story is what you led with, which is like, it's never happened before. So there was no seeing it coming. You, you know, you saw there were potential changes. You, you knew there would need to be something different in order to get to a winning streak. But this was pretty unimaginable to you. Is that right? Yeah, I, that's a good way to put it. I would say I've had my ups and downs. They haven't been great. They haven't been like high ups and, and low downs. I was trying to uh, summarize it the other day, and I thought my highs have been probably just short of euphoria. And I say that back to what you and I have talked about and what you are about, being with my kids now a lot more, being with my fiance, mind, body, and soul focus for me, which is so incredibly important, which it's pretty tough to do that when you're a general manager in the National Football League. Right. My lows have been not much lower than solid, I, to be honest. I mean, I hit my moments every once in a while because, you know, I've been in this uh, almost 30 years, 27 years. Um, this isn't a back pat. I've never been fired before, so it's a long time. I mean, I literally have been in football since I was seven years old. So it's, it's, it, it is surreal for me. Um, trying to figure out why it happened. Um, I have a good relationship, very respectful relationship with Arthur Blank, our owner. And we had a good conversation recently about it. And in the end, 13 years is a long time for a general manager to be in place in one spot in, in our league and in sport in general. And, you know, we weren't winning in the very end. We, we had some really good seasons. We got to the Super Bowl in 16, came up very short, unfortunately, in that. And then since then, we've had some ups and downs. And ultimately, again, Mr. Blank wanted uh, new eyes uh, focusing on the organization. And obviously, it's his prerogative. There's two things that are really interesting what you just said. The first is to do with how long you've been in this game. So your father was a coach uh, uh, over a Canadian team. Remind me the team. Yeah, he was with the Ottawa Roughers. He was a Canadian football league coach. He was a longtime college coach as well, Greg. He was a longtime scout in the NFL. So I'm... I had ideas about being involved with football and I was involved since the day I literally was born. I was born into this sport and I don't say that um, flippantly. I literally have been around it since the day I was born. It wasn't like I went to school for it. I was an economics history major. It wasn't, it wasn't like I even had sports, you know, in my background, but from the day I was born, literally I have worked every level of this game, whether it was picking up dirty clothes as in the equipment room or whether it was working on the technology side or whether it was working in scouting I mean, I've, I've done quite a bit in this and I loved what I was doing, but ultimately, you know, that many years in a, in a sport and in a situation, uh, I'm trying to find the positive side of all of this and trying to say, I need to focus on some other things where I'm really excited and, and keyed up about, I don't know what's next. I still have a couple of years left on a contract. So that is, you know, thank, you know, thankfully to Arthur, um, you know, that puts me in a spot where I don't have to rush into anything. Quite honestly, and I've used this, I've talked on a number of other podcasts about this, where I want to start focusing on some areas of study. And one, one has to be jump back full force into essentialism. 
effortless, which uh, you can segue into that, of course. <laughs> There's just areas that I literally have not been able to focus on and spend too much time on given this job. You remember when we had that talk the other day and you were like, Thomas, all due respect, man, slow down for a minute. And I was trying to fit everything into our con- our conversation, but literally that is the life of a general manager. Well, well, that's exactly it. Someone listening to this could say, well, of course you're going to say, well, I'm spending time with my family and I'm, I'm doing these other things. I mean, like that's, that's like a line that people say when things don't work out how they expected. But the thing that seems clear to me is that you have been running in a certain direction literally your whole life. And I don't mean you've never stopped and paused and reflected like ever, but it does seem like it's just been in front of you. So you've just kept on doing within this one game and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're stepping out of that game yeah, maybe you got pushed out of the nest, fine, but you're now going, okay, I, it's like involuntary essentialism. Where, That's a great way to look at it. Where you suddenly say, okay, I've been wanting to do this genuinely already, but now the opportunity is there, and in fact, I'm required to do it, which I think a lot of people can relate to having just gone through COVID and everything, where suddenly everybody is being you know, faced with circumstances that were not of their choosing, not what they were expecting, not what they saw coming. This is where you're at. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think, first of all, we all would love to come to this decision of our own volition. And, you know, in this sport, it, it just rarely or if ever happens, of course. Something that's interesting to me is that you have a network um, mentoring group of other sports leaders that you've met with before all of this has happened. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really involved and have created, uh, uh, developed some really, really good friendships um, with a lot of people in the international sports scene. So it could be from other sports. Of course, I have some really good, good friends and, and connections in NFL but, you know, R.C. Buford with San Antonio Spurs, who was, who was an historic general manager and executive. David Brailsford, as I mentioned, from Team Ineos, was Team Sky Forever, now Team Ineos, to Brian Cashman with the New York Yankees, um, to a number of other international people from, you know, McLaren Racing to the Premier League. A lot of probably people that you know, uh, there's just, it's a really strong group of people who share. We have a group that we call the P8. And we get together uh, probably two or three times a year, and we no media in it. We vent, we share, we uplift, we educate. It's a really, really good group to be able to to um, you know discuss things that might not be discussed with anyone else. Sometimes it's good to be able to have uh, you know consistencies and synchronicity with people, and I don't get that often. And sometimes you don't get it within your own league, right, Greg? Because people aren't sharing necessarily that way. So to get there with people outside of my sport, that's really, really vital. And I think very educational. What, what kind of education have you gained from that group? Well, I, I think one of the things that it seems again, very, very much uh, synonymous with your approach, a lot of it has to do with coming back to, again, lucid communication. And, I, and that's a big picture discussion of many, many layers, of course, as you know, 
um, we continue to talk about that. We continue to talk about how important it is to, to make sure that what you're communicating is the right thing to be communicating and how you communicate it. You have to navigate properly when you are communicating. It's important for me. I mean, people are wildly important to me and you're not going to thrive as an organization if you're not. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And, 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 and tell me this, like now in your life, here you are, you know, it's a bit unthinkable. It's a bit unimaginable. And yet at the same time, it's always possible. So that's sort of the background. But you're here where you are now. What is essential to you now that you think you might be underinvesting in? I mean, right now, not a month ago, a year ago, right now. First thought. Look, Greg, I, I think you and I might have talked about this before, but one of the things that I realized when people ask me, what was the most complicated thing about being a general manager? Well, one is on game day, you have no say about what goes on on the field, right? That is very complicated. You're, you're in the proverbial tunnel or watching mm. from the press box. You can't say throw deep to Julio Jones or screen pass or blitz. You can't. That's right. complicated. That is very complicated for frustrating. me. Frustrating. Frustrating beyond. But even more frustrating than that and even more difficult than that is this incessant tug on my time. And, and I thought that I was going to figure it out. I thought in the first two or three years it was going to get, it was going to get better and just kept building and building. And where I thought it was going to be easier as I had more experience getting into my 10, 11, 12, 13 years, it became even more complicated at times. Hmm. And that, that was something that was quite unnerving because I realize more and more now the importance of solitude, the importance of being able to think, the importance to be in, in being able to, to, um, you know, game plan without, again, the incessant knock on the door, tug on my time, which was really complicated. I have often thought, I've never been an ADD person at all, but I've often thought there's this NFL GM sort of precipitated ADHD thing that mm. goes on because you get to a point where you are flying through everything. Everything is a skim read. Everything becomes much, you just don't have an opportunity to read the books and study as you want or hmm. study the drafts the way you want or study the acquisitions or the finances. You rely on a lot of people, which is great, but you get, you get like uh, snapshots of everything. We know that that's, that's today's world. It's something that really bothers me back to time and being able to invest in something that's going to help me grow mind, body, and soul. And, and that is where I have underinvested. And that's where it will change, whether I get another job in the NFL or I venture off into the business of sport in some other way. Believe me, I will make a, a massive effort to change that uh, after having gone through what I've gone through and been able to sort of reconsider. What you just told me is that the nature of the job is ADHD-inducing. That even if that's not who you are, not your temperament, the temperament of the job is so strong that it makes remakes you in its image. No, that's exactly right. Keep going because in, in, in today, in today's world, but my dad was a football man. He was a football coach all my life. And he, he, he was, I was raised going through that. And I look at that and I, and I think it is, you know, in the scope of it all, God willing, we all live to a hundred years old, but that's still a, a blip. 
as you said, and you, you, you're very strongly articulate how important that is. So I want to make sure that I'm controlling my time. I hate the fact that someone else is controlling my time. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. You're wanting not just to make sure that the space to think yourself, to think and plan, you want to... I think you are trying to redesign you like you're saying okay i'm at 2.0 i want to get to 3.0 and 3.0 looks like more time with my son like i just can't miss the next five years it probably does mean reinvention in the career okay there's still there's still things you want to do and opportunities are bound to come up so it's about well how will i lead differently but also how will i live differently to maintain a balance and an equilibrium between these areas of contribution that work. You're trying to work out how would you do that in the next that, act? Well, that's, yes, exactly. And I sit there and I think often to, to your point, again, my father being post-war gen you know, a lot of really interesting uh, axioms or directives over the years that made me who I am. But there are also elements that aren't, they don't hold true today. And that's another part of where I really want to dig in and find out what do I, in fact, jettison all due respect and God bless his soul. You know, that said, there are things that I need to put aside now because they don't fit with my sort of quest to have balance in with my my son and my daughter and my fiance and my life moving forward because you know again life being fleeting there just there is so much more that we can accomplish and if we're not able to spend that time and really think through it i think before you know it you know we are sitting on our rocking chairs i hate to say that cuz i'm not a rocking chair person but <laughs> you know that 
line by Thoreau, uh, paraphrasing, when I come to die, find out that I have not yet lived. That is a scary um, sort of analogy or thought for me. I want to build on a couple of things you just said, but I want to also pull up the Thoreau quote. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. What I hear in you is this great respect for your father and a pain point in this sudden absence. 60 years old, you're expecting time left with him. And he was expecting time left. And then suddenly it's not there. And you want to make sure underneath all of this noise and current activities in your life to not repeat the regret and to say, I want to thrive in my career. I want to, I've got something else left to do, but I don't want to do that in such a way that I miss this essential moment and these essential relationships. And it's so easy to do it. You want to use this time to really try to figure out how to, how to get that right. That's exactly right. It's so easy in our sport, as it is in many businesses, as you know, through all your relationships to say, I'll get to that in a year. Before you know it, four years go by, five years, eight years, 13 years go by. And back to, you know, again, the row quote. I mean, again, I sit there and I think I, do, I don't want to have regrets. I have no regrets, but for, you know, some of how I balanced and where my time was. Of course, you know, I have a great relationship with both of my children. And that is so incredibly important to me, as I do with my family. Um, but it can always be better. And it can be exponentially better in my mind now where I am because I feel I, I know so much more. I, I, and I say that humbly. I, was, I could lead back into, into professionally, right? In those first three or four years, you know, I feel like I was thriving early. I had a little bit of uh, swagger about me in my early years because, you know, you're, you're, just, you're in a different mode. You're not, you don't have golden handcuffs on. That's a whole other topic. And all of a sudden you know, years start going by and you start, you start realizing that it becomes a little more complicated. There's a lot more involved. And do you really, you know, do you want this? How many more years do you really want this? Me, I, I got the general manager job um, uh, when I was 40, just 40 and a half years old. And all of a sudden it's, I'm 54. That is a massive revelation for me. Though I had some great times you know, I, there were some great highs, some tough lows, of course. That's life. There's, this is back to the, to the ADD-inducing culture, where busyness is celebrated as a bogus badge of honor, where if you aren't doing everything all of the time, someone can judge you someone can say, well, you're not doing enough. And, and what you're trying to do in this pause now that you have is, is push back on those assumptions to invest differently yourself 
but also I think I still sense in you a how could I construct a future that would help me to perform even better as a general manager in whatever role, but also really protect space to think, to pause, to reflect, to prioritize, and to build not just good relationships, but great relationships with the people that matter most. That's the conundrum. That seems to be the question that you're grappling with now. And that's, that's the question. And I realized deep in my soul that that is and would be the best for me. And I would perform and function, again, I really believe it, exponentially better than I would if, if I'm fragmented and pulled in many different directions and sort of there with my son and daughter, but not sort of there with my fiance, but not. I mean, I understand. I, I know at the core what is going to make me happy and focused. And I think that's a lot of people in this business. And everyone wants to push it aside and not discuss it because it's, you know, maybe not tough and gritty enough. Um, but you and I both know that's not the case. In no way should anyone be evaluated or, or uh, you know, gauged of, of their grittiness and their mental toughness because they want to be around their family and their loved ones and get better and grow all the time uh, because that's ultimately what our organization should want of us. Yes. And what I think you just raised though is, can it be done? Not could it be done in a vacuum? Like you're saying, of course, it's got to be true that if I focus on what's most important personally and protect that and focus on what's most important professionally and protect that I could make a bigger contribution personally and professionally. All of that makes sense to you. But what do you do in a culture that isn't buying into those assumptions? In a culture within the NFL, within whatever franchise you're a part of, but also within the, the culture outside of the NFL where, where everything you're doing appears in social media where everybody's got an opinion, where, where you're getting real-time feedback constantly in every game. This is not what it used to be. And so the challenge, I think, here is how can you do it? You know, how can you be an essentialist in a non-essentialist culture? Very, very, good, very good question. I mean, look, I... I sit there and I think about everything that you're talking about right now. And if you recall, um, you're talking about perceptions and, and the, every time you're turning around, there's some social um, opinion about one thing or another. And if you recall, we were talking about potentially doing this podcast, but I returned a message to your assistant and said, not the right time. We are 0 and 3 at the time, I believe. And it would not be perceived well by the fan base. They would think, why in the heck? is, you know, Thomas Dimitrov on a podcast. The reality is people aren't spending every second of their day immersed in their job, right? So it's, it's again, it's perception. It's unfortunate. I will say along these same lines, what I am proud of, as much as it's complicated still, there is an evolution and I love seeing it. I feel like people and perceptions, we're evolving and we understand we're much more open to talk about this. Most people are now, whether mm. they follow through or not, this may be a generation away. I don't know. I'm, I'm praying it's not, 
Hmm. But there is so much more discussion about this. I'd say 30 years ago in, in this business or 30 or 50 or whatever it was, the discussion about these kind of things and that would be perceived as an element of softness or, or misguided, misdirected. You know, there needs to be acute focus and, and myopic approaches to this game or you won't be a champion. You and I both know that that's nonsense. What, what you just said is that there's a window of opportunity within there seems to be an opening opportunity for a new conversation to take place. And when you talk to other coaches, other managers, players, there are people who want to have the conversation. And that was sort of unthinkable a generation ago. But you think there might be a way to do something about this. Uh, that you don't just have to do it on your own. Maybe there's a way to expand the conversation uh, inside the organization broadly. Well, that's right. I think, again, you know, as a leader, you set the tone, right? And I think people believed, I know, and I say it again humbly, within our organization and within other organizations of people that know me, I think it's, it's important to be real. I mean, I'm a big believer in authenticity. And, you know, some people think, well, I wouldn't mention that, tuck it away, don't ever show that side to you, whatever that is. And again, I am every day amazed more and more in our league and my interaction with people at all levels. Some of the the entry level people all the way through to the mid level, all the way to the top. We had an incredible conversation uh, about social justice um, a few months ago within our organization. Hands down, Greg, one of the very best meetings that I have ever shared or ever had with our with a group ever hmm. and in a nutshell what it was is we created a forum to bring all of our scouting group together and all of the personnel and football ops department for the most part and we started talking about social justice we started talking about you know what was going on up in minneapolis and what was going on around in south georgia and everything that was going on and it was the most emotional meeting amongst a number of hardcore, hard-nosed football people with tears and, and emotions flowing. And I was mm. unbelievably moved by it, as well everyone. It was a game changer in my mind for the back to trust and appreciation within that organization. And it's, it's only, I, I got a text the other day from one of our scouts who was sitting in on it and was reflecting on it and just saying, man, I just, it's one of those things that we've never touched on before. And I think it's opened up uh uh it's opened up opportunities that we are so much more appreciative of being able to do this moving forward so thank you and i it was heartwarming for me well it's such a powerful example and it really reminds me of a definition of culture that i like which is that culture is what you can and can't talk about so when we talk about when we talk about their being a new conversation and the, how powerful that was in the room for people to be able to say things that they already feel, already know, but they're not allowed to talk about it just by norm and how, and how fruitful and useful that was. In a similar way, there are other conversations that can be had. And where I see essentialism being brought into a team or a culture, a whole organization successfully is where people don't just try to be essentialists on their own. They don't just try to figure out what 
matters for themselves and then go execute it. Actually, that's quite a painful way to go. It's like the hard way to do it because people won't know what's happened to you. Uh, you know, why is he suddenly saying no to things that you say yes to? And what, you know, they just won't get it. In fact, I just had somebody else on the, on the podcast. His name is Banks uh, Benitez, and he's the CEO of Uncharted. And he brought his whole company got to read Essentialism. And they said, well, what are we going to do about it? And what they came up with was an experiment. Could we have a four-day work week? And they went through this whole experimentation uh, and in the end concluded they would, and they did, and they are now. That's official policy. But what made me want to cheer why I'm talking about it now, was to hear him describe the conversations they had inside of their organization. He said one, one time while they were reading the book, somebody came in and they almost, they said, I, sometimes I want to throw this book across the room. And as soon as he said that, I thought, yeah, they, they're really reading it. They're wrestling with it. They're going, is this, how on earth would I do this? And what would the trade-offs have to be? And, and that means they're really talking and really reading, and not just going through the motions. And hearing you describe this window of opportunity for essentialism, and then how this has been done recently with something really important, makes me think that there could be a role for you to be a leader over time to bring this conversation into the NFL, to be able to be a voice in, in creating space where other people read and discuss and talk and people will come to different conclusions and different applications, but they mm -hmm. can't do any of that until they have the language and the space to have a new conversation. Your thoughts? Wow. Look, I, that idea of if you're approaching essentialism alone. So I recall this very thing happened with me. So I was so excited about it, and I got up on the whiteboard with my, at the time, uh, my uh, pseudo chief of staff. There's only one chief of staff or one person in our organization that could have a chief of staff, and that was not me. Uh, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm saying our yeah. owner can have a chief of staff, but he basically was my assistant and, and, and was really, gotcha. really good in a lot of ways. And we went up, and I literally went across the entire board, which I had the, the span of my entire office. And I created what I called my essentialism masterpiece. And it went from prioritizing what was essential. It, it, without getting into too much detail on it, we can talk about it another time. Basically, 10 different phases is, is the number 10 worked for me well. And it, it went from the very beginning, you know, with a lot of the, the ideas of, you know, who I was, you know, my, my commitment to mind, body, and soul, my commitment to uh, my, my own faith, my, my, my family, of course being number one and where my priorities were. If I read through it now, I realize really, I feel really strongly about it. And I want to revisit it again, but I've spent a lot of time on that. Mm. I showed it to people who I actually hired. I hired a, a, a relatively new EA. And the first thing she needed to do was sit down and spend time with me on it, Greg, and understand it clearly so that she knew where I was coming from. One thing, though, that I will add is what you touched on in your book and what you just touched on there. I, where I went awry is I spent all this time thinking about me and how, it was, how I was going to function on this and affect everyone versus opening this up to a lot of the people in the organization, especially back to that mid-man group that I was talking about, right. where 
they knew they knew that I was adjusting and, and again, good relationships, but some didn't. Some struggled with it. Some wanted more and more time and they were struggling with the fact that they were no longer feeling like they were valued as much. If I were to have communicated clearer about my goal of essentialism, I did and I told people to read it, but really sat down. You know, who knows? Maybe have maybe have a handful of seminars about it and discussions about it. So it's a great point uh, that I've been thinking a lot about lately. That's exactly the idea there is that is that it's about trying to introduce the language of essentialism and the space to talk about it and permission to debate it and to and to wrestle with it. And that role of leader as teacher is something I've really seen be necessary so that you take on the the teaching role, the facilitating role around these ideas. And it's an informal certification where you say, I'm going to really keep coming back to these ideas so that other people can come and talk about them with me. And it's not just me sort of dictating a focused agenda. It's together figuring out what we think is the priority this year, this quarter, today, this training session, and allowing that to happen. And, and I, think, I think you could be poised to do something special with this, not even now as if this is plan B, but just now, that this, in fact, is plan A, that you're on plan A. You just didn't know it. But this is plan A, and part of that plan, part of this new identity, this 3.0, is for you to be able to be that teacher and bring these ideas back into the culture and be, I think, a more significant leader than you would have been without this experience. I think your greatest contribution lies ahead of you as you put this into this new evolved vision. I love it. 3.0. I'm going to be focusing on that. And that, that is how I have been feeling as I continue to talk about, you know, that solitude and those times to really think through. And this will be a really, really important part of it. To that point recently, you know, I have, I have thoughts about reaching out, you know, even in the interim, it's, it's not about the money, the interim, being able to help people, being able to help the league where they are with their young hires being able to mentor. I just started getting to that spot in my you know, early 50s where I started thinking more about legacy and mentoring. I uh, wasn't thinking about it that much. I didn't get a chance to really immerse myself in it. Maybe this is the time, again, until next opportunities come to be able to reach out to the league and offer my assistance uh, or, or other people. I mean, I have a number of other people in other sports businesses that it may be, may be worth my while and it will continue to help me grow as you mentioned, the more I'm articulating it and involved with it. Well, I think there's a profound conversation here beyond, uh, you know, to continue. Uh, I was just talking to somebody who works in the Olympics and and they were talking about the problems they have there with with athletes. Now that it's so professional and so it's so singular, the only thing in your life is to do this thing. It's, It's like essentialism gone bad. It's just so singular that it means that whether someone wins or loses, they're going to have a crash afterwards uh, and, and almost certainly will because there's no balance. There's no sense of, uh, of, of wholeness 
as there once was. And so they, they're really excited to lean into how you might train and again, adapt and change the culture. And so I think across sports, there's a, a conversation to be had. It has been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for, uh, for coming on. Thank you for sharing openly about your story, about your journey, about where you are. Uh, that alone will be helpful to lots of people listening to this. Uh, and also, I think we stumbled here. I think we got to something at the end here uh, that could crescendo into something even more meaningful. Thank you so much for your time. My extreme pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.